Hey, it's Bill Simmons. We're not just reacting to the NBA playoffs on my podcast. We're also doing it on the Ringer NBA show and the Mismatch podcast. They are coming after some of these NBA playoff games. Check it out Monday, Wednesday, and Friday nights on the Ringer Podcast Network. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's The Bear, starring Jeremy Allen White, Ayo Adebri, and Eben Moss Backrack. Season two follows as the crew work to transform their grimy sandwich joint into a next level spot. It turns out the only thing harder than running a restaurant is opening a new one. Television Academy members can watch all episodes at fxnetworks.com slash FYC. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. It is Monday, June 6th. Welcome back. We are going to talk film success stories. So much doom and gloom out there. I think today it'd be nice to do a story about a successful film. Uh, but before we do, let's talk about another successful film, Top Gun Maverick. It's up to $550 million worldwide. And I'm going to take a little victory lap here, producer Craig, because I predicted on the show last week that it would have an unprecedented 30% drop in its second weekend, which is unheard of for big blockbusters. They usually are 50, 60, 70% drops. This movie came in with $86 million domestic this past weekend, a 32% drop. Unbelievable. There's nothing else out there, though. There's literally nothing else to see. That's true. Well, that's part of the reason why I predicted is because for the first time in years, there was no movie opening in the first week of June, so or no big movie. Um, so the, it had it all to itself. I also think that this that movie is pretty unique, Top Gun, and that it's an older demo, and they don't necessarily rush out to movies. They take their time. So it's got the benefit of that pent-up demand. People are like, got to see this movie. And then all these other people that are like, okay, yeah, I'll get around to it. Uh, the word of mouth was also great. It became something that if you're over 40, you know, at least my friends are just like, you got to go see this movie. You got to see it. Um, I think it'll have a harder time this next weekend with Jurassic World just because that's going to steal a lot of screens. It's going to steal a lot of attention. But we'll see how this movie plays. It could get to a billion, which is what I thought it could get close to. Now, um, we'll see. So today, actually, I don't want to talk about Top Gun. I want to talk about another film, Everything, Everywhere, All the Time, which if you haven't seen it. <laughs> no, all at once. All right. It's a bad title. It is a bad title. But they, I mean, they incorporated it, but whatever. Actually, is it a bad title? I don't know. It's a bad title. You, you can't, it's distinctive. True. It's very unique, but it's it's really hard to text in an abbreviation. What do you call this movie? Everything? It's just it's just hard. Everything everywhere is what I do when I text it's people. It's tough. I don't know. All right. So today we're going to talk about everything everywhere all the time. No, <laughs> all at once. It should just be called like, <laughs> should be called like the bagel of death or something. The bagel, the googly eyes of death. Um, all right. We're going to talk about this movie that has a name that I won't say. 
and why it's so successful. It's just past $60 million domestic this past weekend. Um, it's now the biggest movie ever for its studio, A24, which we're also going to talk about because A24 has had a ton of very small but influential hits. That's the studio behind Moonlight, Lady Bird, Hereditary. You could go on and Uncut on. Uncut Gems. TV, like you, yeah. Uncut Gems. Uncut Gems was actually the previous highest grocer. That movie got to $50 million. But this movie is just kind of chugging away, and it's got there. We're going to talk about why. Why does a small time travel slash fantasy slash multiverse family immigrant drama get to this lofty number? And I, to do that, I wanted to bring in Rebecca Keegan, who uh, I worked with at Hollywood Reporter. She's a very smart film writer, is a senior editor for film there. And she has some thoughts on both Everything, everywhere, all the time. All at once. There, I got it. All at once. <laughs> Damn it. Shit. I cannot get this title right. And I literally just saw the movie. I saw it last night. Um, I'm like the last person to see it. So we're going to talk to Rebecca about this movie and about A24 and the anatomy of why this is so successful. I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. Okay, we are here with Rebecca Keegan. Rebecca is the senior editor of film at The Hollywood Reporter. She and I used to work together, and she knows all things movies. We're going to talk a little bit about Everything Everywhere All at Once, this movie by the Daniels, which is the stage name, filmmaker name of Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert. They made a pretty out there, kind of bonkers, sci-fi fantasy movie called Everything Everywhere All at Once. And I don't think anybody expected this movie to do the business that it's doing. Past sixty million dollars domestic this past weekend, which means it's gross more than you know House of Gucci. It's gross more than pretty much anything that's not pre-branded over the last three years, and it's caused a lot of people in Hollywood to question, like, okay, why this movie now? And I have my own thoughts on this, but I want to get your thoughts first of all. Uh, why do you think this movie in this moment is doing this business? Well, everything everywhere all at once is kind of perfectly timed for what people are calling the great box office reset, which is this moment where people really do seem to be returning to theaters. And it's not just for big Marvel tentpole movies or uh, sequels that are nostalgia laden like Top Gun, but it's also apparently for an incredibly weird, um, super original immigrant family drama wrapped in a sci-fi movie about multiverses. Um, but it's the theatricality, right? This feels like something that should be in theaters, is best experienced in theaters. The word of mouth is telling people to go see it in theaters, right? That's the distinction. In many ways, it's not that different from Top Gun, obviously on a smaller scale, but it it justifies its theatricality. Yeah, I think you can say that. I mean, there are certainly, there are martial arts sequences, there are big ideas, but it's, you know, it is a $25 million movie. It's not a movie that has a huge amount of spectacle. I think if there's anything theatrical about it, it's the ideas in it. In a lot of ways, it reminds me of like 2001, A Space Odyssey, in the sense that it's it has um, all of these kind of high concept ideas packed into this little family drama. I also think, you know, if you look at the way A24 brought it out, it opened South by Southwest this year, um, which turns out to have been the festival that was sort of 
best placed for people getting back to in real life festival going, in real life movie going. Um, It played extraordinarily well there. Critics loved it. And people started talking about it as something that was almost so weird um, and so clever. You have to see it to get it. Like, you can't explain it to your friend, really. You just say, you've just got to see it. I can't explain it. You've just got to see it, which is kind of a really good endorsement. Yeah, there's like a Barnum and Bailey element to it. Step right in. You you know, you, you won't get this from how I describe it. Or, right. you know, and people say, okay, and I won't just wait for this on streaming. It is very key here. It is not available on streaming. Right. You have to see it in theaters. Uh, I texted a few producers that I trust about this and said, okay, why is this movie doing so well? One had an interesting comment. He said, it's crazy and unique, but at heart, a traditional multi-generational story. It's not too out there for traditional older movie-going audiences. Um, which is interesting. I, I think it's pretty out there, and and the visuals are pretty stunning, um, especially for this movie to be made at that budget. I've actually heard that it's less than twenty five million. Oh, really? That they, that they kind of padded that budget to make it seem like a bigger How? budget movie. I don't know that. Who for does a fact. that? That's nuts. It's sort of the opposite of what <laughs> traditional studios do, where they they lie about the budget so you don't know how much they spend. Right. Uh, but th- but I get it. They wanted this movie to play bigger, and if it plays like a real studio sci fi movie with a multiverse, you throw that multiverse word around, and people think, oh, it's like Spider Man. Um, but you know this this uh, this per- the producer also noted that the uh, in the early weeks, the attendance was about 21% Asian-American. So Asian audiences very much endorsed this film. Now, interestingly, it wasn't marketed as a, quote, Asian movie. It is not that at all. The family is just a, a, an immigrant family that owns a laundromat. And it was interesting that they kind of hyper-targeted this audience and then expanded it well beyond that audience. Yeah, it was interesting. The theater that I saw it at was the Landmark in Westwood, which is near UCLA. And I saw it on Memorial Day weekend when it had been out for a really, really long time. And the vast majority of the audience was Asian American, um, mostly under 25. And it's interesting because the, the stars of this movie are people who audiences know from a bunch of different realms. I mean, Michelle Yao some people know her from her sort of uh, martial arts movie background mm-hmm. in the 80s and 90s. Crouching Tiger. Right. Crazy Rich Asians. Crazy Rich Asians. And she's so she's got this kind of interesting fan base that I think crosses generations. Um, and she's also one of the things the movie does really well is it kind of holds back her status as this global movie star until a kind of late in the movie reveal. For most of the movie, she's this frumpy lady who owns a laundromat with a sort of hen-packed husband, fanny-pack-wearing husband. Um, And then, you know, in one of the multiverses, her sort of stardom is revealed. But it's kind of a smart way to play into audiences' expectations about this movie star and, um, and to sort of reward her fan base for coming out. Right. And I saw in a lot of the critics' reviews, they really focused on her and how it's such a great showcase for her. And ultimately, it's a story of a mother coming to terms with her husband and daughter. So that adds another element that people you can relate to. There is a heart within this movie, and it's not just a sci-fi spectacle, even though I think it's luring a lot of audiences because of the spectacle aspect of it. Um, let's talk a little bit about A24, because you mentioned them. A24 is the studio behind this movie. And I've written about this company. It is one of the few 
film companies right now, and we can debate the extent of this brand, but it does have a brand. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I would argue that most people don't go to see movies because of the studio that releases the movie. Um, I know that you know Pixar has a brand and you know Disney movies, etc. But typically, adults don't go to movies because of the studio. Uh, Producer Craig has disagreed with me on this subject in the past. Do you believe that people go to see movies because the A24 logo is in front of it? There is definitely a group of people who tend to be young, tend to be coastal, I think, who associate A24 with a certain kind of coolness. And so if they hear an A24 movie is coming out, they want to see it. I, I think that's right among a certain crowd. I don't think you get to $60 million domestic no. based on that coolness. No, but nor nor does Pixar get to, you know, $750 million based on that brand. But it it is it brings them a core demographic that will be there no matter what. That's true. And it's funny because I know a little bit about the company. I've written about A24. It is so not cool. I mean, this is a <laughs> Tell pretty... Me. Tell me how deeply uncool I want. I mean, I want. this is a private equity play. I mean, right. This was a Guggenheim executive who left and said, you know, give me some money. I'll start a film company. And, you know, they just did a round of fundraising from uh, a company called Stripes. They raised $225 million at a $2.5 billion valuation. And this is, you know, their offices are in Midtown, not Brooklyn. And they're like, you know, they, they, I know they sell candles for 50 bucks on their website and they have a (laughs) huge merch and you see Greta Gerwig wearing an A24 hat, but this is like a very, very crass private equity play. Yet they have built this brand that stands for something among a certain cachet of audiences. And they do do things differently in Hollywood. I think that's why a lot of people in the industry look to them skeptically. They don't like them because they have kind of bucked the trend and and broken the mold with how they do things. They don't market their movies in the same way. They have very specific social media-driven marketing campaigns. They don't do the Oscar game in the same way. They don't buy these lavish trade ads. They very much focus on getting the movies seen and cultivating this coolness factor. They, uh, they you know, they, when it comes to how they, like you mentioned, the film festival stuff, all studios that release small movies go to film festivals. Yet somehow A24 is is able to leverage a festival like South by Southwest to create the kind of buzz that they need to launch this movie. It's it's pretty mar- it's pretty remarkable. It is remarkable. There's another word for that ske- skepticism that you hear in town, and I think it's jealousy. I agree. Um, yes. So when the the first movie that A24 financed with their own money was Moonlight itty-bitty movie about black masculinity directed by a director, Barry Jenkins, no one had heard of, with a cast of unknowns, and it goes on to win Best Picture. So I'd say the town was a little rattled by that. And um, it's actually, I enjoy hearing how deeply uncool the company is because one of the most uncool things that they do is decline every request for an interview I have ever made, no matter where I work. Right. Uh, they don't talk. They don't do press at all. They, they don't do press. Um, but but so part of that has has created this kind of mystique, which it sounds like they may need um, in order to maintain their cool factor. Basically, all I knew about them for years of watching their movies and admiring their movies was like was founded by these three guys in New York who were in their 30s and came from the indie film world and 
they all, it felt like they were all named David, but that's not true. But that was sort of like what was in my brain about who A24 right. is. Um, and I think that's they liked by it design. that way. They, would, by they design. don't want you to know that, you know, it, it was founded with Guggenheim Securities Muddy. Right. Uh, and, you know, they, they, there's a very sophisticated financial modeling operation that is behind every one of their movies. Right. Uh, but the Moonlight campaign was really interesting because if you remember back five, six years ago, it was Moonlight versus La La Land for Best Picture. La La Land was from Lionsgate, a traditional studio, and it, that movie had made about $300 million and got a very big, lavish marketing campaign. Moonlight, I remember being at The Hollywood Reporter at the time, they were spending nothing. I mean, our publisher at the time was like, I freaking hate this movie because they don't spend anything to market it. <laughs> right. And then lo and behold, it catches fire. Everybody starts talking about it. And it became the cool thing that everybody voted for. And of course, the, the mix up on stage for Best Picture, but ultimately Moonlight won. Right. I think that was a real turning point for this company. It was a huge, it was huge. But I, I mean, it's interesting because they don't market in the traditional way. I don't think that we will be seeing, maybe maybe this is changing. I don't know. You may know. But I don't think like during the NBA finals, we'll be seeing ads for everything everywhere all at once. You know, they have relied, 95% of their marketing has been historically online. Remember one of their first kind of sneaky little promotions was um, for the movie Ex Machina, where they had, uh, they put Alicia Vikander, a, a profile for her, her character on Tinder. And so people were literally <laughs> swiping. So it's like stuff like that, that, that is creative and cheap and then ends up going viral and increasing awareness of their, of the film among the audience they're trying to reach. Right. And it, and it, it eventizes. That's the big thing here. I mean, I, it's sort of a cliche in the film world. Of how do you eventize your film? Mm -hmm. But if you can do it, if you can do it with a small budget film and make it feel like an event, the prospects for profitability are are pretty good. Um, the the interesting thing also about A twenty four is that it has been the subject of endless industry gossip about someone buying the company. Yes. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times someone said, oh, Apple is in negotiations. They're doing due diligence. The announcement is imminent. Um, you know, Amazon wants them. Everybody wants them. And I, I, I don't know how much this is them seeding the waters, putting this stuff out there, or just like you said, gossip, jealousy, anger, everyone's saying, okay, they got to sell out. Yeah, I would say like once every three months for the last five years, I've had to chase down a tip like that only to find that it is not actually happening, or if it was happening, it's no longer happening. But I, I'm sure that we have, like, the at what, at what we say at The Hollywood Reporter, we have the shell prepped in case. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, we all have the, we have the story pre-written in the event that A24 gets bought because every reporter in town has been told it's going to get bought multiple times over the past few years. How real that is still is unclear to me. Why would a company like Apple want a24 i still don't quite understand i know they're very successful they produce euphoria for television they've got a great track record on creating the these you know small scale hits but apple is in the business of mass entertainment now right they are although i think there was a period where apple was dipping its toe in hollywood and wanted to be cool and you can't actually if you're from silicon valley you can't like just magic taste and you can't magic coolness. You have to buy it. Um, and the easiest way to buy it, the cheapest way to buy it would be buying A24, which has exhibited pretty impeccable taste in my opinion. I mean, there are a few companies that in my mind 
I know for their taste, Neon is another one, which I associate with Tom Quinn. Parasite and a couple right. of other, yeah. Right, Um at A24, again, I have no idea whose taste it actually is, but you get the sense that if you, if you Apple, this giant company bought A24, you would be getting people who have taste in, in know what films are actually good, which is harder than it sounds. Um, I think the weird thing about Apple ever considering A24 is that so many of their movies are completely, um, kind of, well, very sexual uh, themes, um, a lot of just weirdness that is right. hard to Red, imagine Red fitting Rocket, in. Spring Breakers, you know, right. uh, those, you know, they're not, they're not going to love the full frontal male nudity, right? Even something like Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is, you know, pretty in a lot of ways family friendly. There's like jokes with dildos in it. There's weird stuff that you can't imagine. Hot dog fingers. Hot dog fingers. <laughs> and, you know, like, I picture, like, you know, Tim Cook sitting back in his screening room and watching it and thinking, should we buy this company? And I, you know, I imagine he might get a chuckle out of it, but it's hard for me to imagine that company living within the Apple universe. Sure. It's not Coda. It's not Ted Lasso. It's not that, you know, they Apple has, has released some edgier stuff yeah. but they don't they don't go into the you know NC17 realm ever right right and they and they have no desire and whenever i talk to people there they're like you know yeah we have the morning show which has me too elements to it but we probably wouldn't do that if we launched that today right right they needed to grab people with something it's interesting cuz the company that people so often compare um A24 to is is 90s Miramax right Without, I, I've said, without the asshole brothers. Right. Without, I mean, 90s Miramax, without Harvey Weinstein going into the editing room and completely reworking your movie. But 90s Miramax in the sense that they actually did have pretty interesting taste. They were releasing these art house movies that managed to find big audiences. Um, and, I, you know, it's an imperfect comparison, but it's the one that comes up most often. Yeah, and I think, you know, whereas Harvey was innovative in, you know, buying New York Times advertising for small independent movies, they are doing similarly innovative things in the marketing of movies to young people where they are, which is on social media. Yeah, yeah, and I and, I, and they're not, their business model is not as reliant upon the awards business as Miramax's was. Um so, which I think is probably healthier. I mean, chasing awards is expensive. And as we've seen with some other companies, it doesn't always work out the way you plan. Yeah, you can spend $30 million to win an Oscar, and then it translates into maybe five, ten million million at the box office. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, all right, this is fascinating. I, you know, I, I think in the film world, A24 has this cachet, and I think that only, the, everything everywhere is only going to grow that the thing that they have been very smart about when they've had these hits is they haven't done what a lot of independent studios do when they have hits, which is to start spending, spending, spending. They've been super disciplined about these movies. And in fact, this is this movie is on the larger budget end of right. what they do. So, you know, do you think that A24 will stay that course or do you think that they will start to, you know, say, hey, you know, we could make a $50 million movie and make $500 million. It's a good question. I mean, so what? So this this new financing of theirs that you wrote about, you mm. said their valuation is $2.5 billion. Is that right? Did, yeah. I, did I hear you right? That is correct. And, they, you know, a lot of the money they've raised is going to be used for international. Mm -hmm. um, the interesting thing about Everything Everywhere is it's actually not doing huge numbers overseas. 
Uh, it's still at about 17 million overseas. And and Hereditary, the Ari Aster movie, is still their biggest movie globally. So I think they're going to use a lot of this money to build up the international side and probably invest in television. You know, that's where a lot of the growth is right now is in TV, although the margins for dramas are not as great as they once were. Um, but they make a lot of money on Euphoria, and I think they want to cre- you know, build out that brand. But it'll be interesting to see if they increase the budgets on their movies. Yeah. I, they had a lot, actually, at, at Cannes. I just came back from Cannes, and they had Irma Vep, this um, TV show. Oh, that's on HBO, right? I think so, yeah. Fact check me on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, they had the Jesse Eisenberg uh, feature directorial debut, um, When You Finish Saving the World. They had this Claire Denis movie. I mean, it's actually pretty eclectic mix of stuff. Um, so they're clearly, you know, busy. They're clearly making new movies. They're clearly making new TV shows. I am curious what happens if they go bigger budget. I, I, if it means taking big swings like everything everywhere all at once, then I am down for it. And if it means getting, <laughs> if it means getting people into movie theaters for stuff that's original and that's not, its whole value isn't in its IP, then I think it's healthy for the industry. And it's kind of a welcome counterbalance to what's happening to the movie business at traditional studios. Right. At a time when movies are basically like feast or famine, it's nice to have a solid independent hit that people can point to and say, listen, if you greenlight my movie, maybe it becomes that. Yeah, I just imagine all the weird movies that are going to be greenlit based on the success of Everything Everywhere All at Once. That is, I th- that's a tough one to duplicate, but people will surely try. And most try. will suck, but maybe yes. there's one that's great and we'll be talking about in a year. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, thank you, Rebecca Keegan. Rebecca is the senior film editor at The Hollywood Reporter, and we appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Matt. All right, we are back with the call sheet, my daily prediction. Craig, do you watch CNN? Not really, no. No, I don't think anyone under 50 does with regularity. CNN is relevant like five to seven times a year. If something big is happening, I will perhaps put it on. Like January 6th? Yes. I was like all day watching CNN. Holy shit, you know, amazing coverage. The early days of Ukraine, watching CNN has great Ukraine coverage. But you are not a Don Lemon regular. I'm not, no. Okay. Uh, so CNN has a new leader, Chris Licht, who's very smart. He was Stephen Colbert's producer, and he was at CBS and created Morning Joe. And the new ownership where you know Warner Media is the owner of CNN, they got transferred over to Discovery. They are trying to change CNN. It got so politicized during the Trump years and was really associated with the kind of resistance journalism that they are trying to bring it more to the center. They're trying to desensationalize it. Uh, and one of the things they announced this past week was that they are going to eliminate or significantly reduce the breaking news chyron that they put on the screen when something was going on. If you watch CNN in the past few years, breaking news was always happening. Breaking news. And now they're saying they're going to be more judicious with that. My prediction is that will make zero difference. (laughs) Well, I certainly don't see how that would increase viewership. I don't understand that at all. (laughs) And it's it's actually, they're not trying to increase viewership. The whole strategy for CNN is they're trying to make it more of a Tiffany brand where it feels elevated and it feels prestigious. And they think that that will help bring in more and better advertisers. But the previous leader, Jeff Zucker, was all about, you know, jumping on one story and just covering the shit out of it. 
in the early days, it was like the poop cruise. You probably don't remember that. But uh, there was this cruise liner that everyone was stuck on and like there were no bathrooms. And they called it the poop cruise. There was this missing airliner. Remember the Malaysia flight? Yeah, yeah. That was a huge deal. And like if you went on CNN every night, it was like the biggest story, breaking news, you know, the a possible location of the black box or something like that. Uh, now they're really trying to lean into being a prestige brand and they don't necessarily care about you know, increasing the ratings. Although they, they do think that ratings will increase if they can bring in more conservative viewers. Um, mm-hmm. But it's an interesting thing to announce. We, you know, we news network are no longer going to bombard you with breaking news. They should get A24 to come in and rebrand their whole company. They should. That'll bring in the 30-year-olds to cable yeah. news. That's the thing about cable news. It's so old. The audience for these shows is so old. Uh, you know, the it, Fox is older than CNN, but they're both in the high 60s, early 70s of viewership. So, you know, it's a tough business. Uh, I, I think Chris Licht is a smart guy, but I don't think that uh, it, removing the breaking news banner is going to make any difference to the average viewer. All right. That's the show. I want to thank Rebecca Keegan coming on today. I want to thank producer Craig Horlbeck. And I want to thank you. We'll see you later. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.